we stand in the presence of God's word. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. But Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. They left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. This time last year, Gail and Jason, Janet, our granddaughter Abigail, went to Israel along with others from our church. We'd been trying to figure out exactly what the pilgrims who had not been before should see. We had been five times before. One of the things that we included was the Jesus boat. One morning after spending the night in a hotel in Tiberias, uh, we went down to the dock. A boat picked us up and took us out into the lake. Uh, as the sun was continuing to rise in the east, we went to the west to Capernaum. And when we got to Capernaum, we pulled up at a dock there and went into a museum called the Museum of the Jesus Boat. It was 25 years ago, there was a horrible drought that hit northernmost Israel did not rain, did not rain, and the Sea of Galilee, which you know is a freshwater lake, continued to go down, down, down. And one morning some fishermen saw, looked like posts almost, sticking up out of the mud where once there had been water. But these posts were in a pattern of some sort, and very smartly they identified authorities who came down and began to dig around and discovered that in fact... This was the ruin of an old boat. And they finally decided exactly how it should be handled so that it wouldn't disintegrate because it seemed to be very old. Uh, they finally put it in a saline solution for seven long years, then coated it with a material, sprayed it uh, with something that they thought would preserve it. They did carbon dating and discovered that, in fact, it was a boat of the first century. Now, we cannot say for sure that Jesus ever touched it, got into it, but it is a boat of the period. It's 25 feet long, if you can imagine, six, uh, four people six feet tall, sort of stretched out down front here. 25 feet is not so very much. It's a little over seven feet wide, so a person six feet tall would have a little space on the end of his or her head and feet if they were to stretch right at the widest point. About four and a half feet deep. Uh, from from the very top of it down to the to the bottom, we were told that it could have been rowed, but it could also would have had small sails and and could have been sailed out into the lake uh, when the wind was blowing appropriately. A boat, 
a very special boat, one like the one Jesus asked Simon to push out a little way from the shore so that he could see the people. I've underlined four things here. First of all, you have every preacher's dream. So many people wanting to hear you. You cannot figure out where to put them all. And they just kept coming and coming until finally Jesus looked around, saw this boat tied to the dock and said to Simon, uh, I need you to back this thing out a little way so I can see the people and they can see me. He sat down and began to teach them because that was the posture of a teacher in the first century. The teacher sat, the listeners stood. So the people are standing on the bank there, sort of an amphitheater around him as he speaks from the boat. Luke thinks this is a very important thing. Four times in his gospel, he uses this very expression, same words in Greek, the word of God. And 14 times he uses it in his later work, the book of Acts, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Hungering for the word. I was reading an interview the other day in the newspaper uh, with Elmore Leonard. Some of you who enjoy novels with lots of action have probably enjoyed the writing of Elmore Leonard. He's been writing for many, many years. He's sold more than six million of his books. Twenty years ago, he came up with a character, a United States Marshal, and he found this character was well-received by a lot of his readers, and he wrote about him again and again. That character has now become the key player in a new television series called Justified. Now, Gail and I have been going to the Peggy Helmerich uh, Author of the Year dinner for many, many years. I think we've been to every one of them, and we've heard some whose works have been made into movies say, they ruined my story. They absolutely ruined my story. We heard one say, Hey, when I sold it to them, whatever they wanted to do to it was okay with me. But Elmore Leonard said, when I wrote this character almost 20 years ago, I had never heard of Tim Oliphant, and I'm sure he had never heard of me. But I tell you, when I watch this program, Tim Oliphant walks exactly like the character I wrote and he says my words exactly the way I wrote them. And I thought about that sermon a few weeks ago, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That finally somebody got it right. Jesus of Nazareth was doing it and saying it just the way God had always had in mind. Number two, Simon need you to back this thing out a little bit farther. I want you to drop your nets in the deep water. I've heard preachers preach on this text, and they really go into that word, the deep water. Too many people spend their life in the shallows. But that's not where I'm going today. What I want to say in this second point is how Jesus has already seen something in Simon and Drew, his brother, co-workers, James and John, that he's offering them a whole new look at what life is, a whole new opportunity here. Move out to the deeper water, drop the nets. Can you imagine four commercial fishermen listening to a carpenter from a little nowhere place called Nazareth telling them how to fish? 
But Simon Peter's mother-in-law has already been healed, so he takes Jesus seriously here and says, We've tried all night. We've caught nothing. Hey, whatever you say, I will do. Last May, when Gail and I were in New York City as tourists, part of our vacation, we went to see a play starring Kiefer Sutherland. It was called That Championship Season. The play is about uh, a basketball team who won their city championship their senior year in high school. And now they've come together 20 years later at the home of their coach for a reunion. So they're 38 years old now. And as the play gets underway, they start drinking and they drink. And then, of course, the more they drink, the, the old inhibitors finally go to sleep and they start telling each other what's really been happening the last 20 years. And, of course, one guy's life after the other has really gone downhill, by and large. They're not having a championship season now. But we saw Kiefer Sutherland up close, you know, got to watch him perform in that play. It was such a different character from the one he played in 24. When one hour seems to take forever and yet seems to be moving so quickly as well. Well, this season he has a new series called Touch. And the previews say he is so completely different in this one from the character he played before. He now is playing a young father whose wife has died. And he's been left with a 10-year-old son who's autistic. This child has amazing ability with numbers, but cannot make a sentence. And the preview that I read said, look into the face of Kiefer Sutherland and see how desperately he's trying to get through to this son whom he loves so very much. That's what God was doing in Christ Jesus for you and me. Daughters and sons who hadn't heard him very well, who didn't really understand, who hadn't picked up on what he'd been trying to say for hundreds of years. Number three, Simon fell down on his knees. Just eight months ago, I heard this text preached on at annual conference. Bishop Hayes had invited a retired professor emeritus from St. Paul's Seminary who had taught homiletics, preaching uh, in his career there, to come and preach at our annual conference. He preached on this text. And he began by saying, you know, why would Peter act this way? I mean, he's a commercial fisherman. That's what he does for a living. Suddenly a guy comes who knows where the fish are. Why wouldn't you have said, hey, have I been waiting for you? You tell me where to put the nets, I will put the nets, and you and I will make a killing. And then this professor started telling us about a grandson whom they had gone to see receive a special award because he had worked really hard and had, had won and achieved this award. And they went to see a granddaughter and talked about how she was being rewarded, and appropriately so because she had really worked hard. So why is Peter acting the way he's acting? Because he knows he brings nothing to the party. He's done nothing for Jesus to single him out for something very special. Taking Gail to Italy is like taking Br Rabbit to the Briar Patch. You know that her grandparents came from the island off the coast of uh, Sicily? Food is wonderful. 
You don't find bad Italian food in Italy. It's wonderful everywhere. We've enjoyed our trips so very much. The first time you go, you see the big, big places, of course. Did you see on television this week the Colosseum had to be closed because of ice and snow? It was not safe for tourists to, to be there. Well, we've been to Rome several different times, and most people first want to see the Colosseum, and they want to go to the Vatican. They want to see the Sistine Chapel. You want to see the Trevi Fountain. But eventually you start seeing other places not so well known. If you go not far from the Trevi Fountain, you come to the Piazza Navona. And if you go just around the corner, there's a beautiful church, almost 500 years old, called San Luigi. And if you go into San Luigi and look on your left, there's a magnificent painting done by a fellow named Michelangelo Marisi. Not the Michelangelo. This one came to be known by the name of his hometown, Caravaggio. Caravaggio came more than 400 years ago to paint this picture. It's really magnificent. Caravaggio had been to St. Peter's. He had seen the Sistine Chapel. He had seen Michelangelo's beautiful drawing, painting there of God reaching out his finger, touching almost the finger of Adam. And so when you look at this painting, it isn't God and Adam. It isn't even Jesus calling Peter. It's Jesus and Peter calling Matthew, the tax collector. But if you look at the hand of Jesus, Caravaggio has painted the hand of God from the Sistine Chapel. It is that same hand pointing now at Matthew. Matthew's sitting at the table with all these taxes he's collected. There are three grown men. There are two teenage boys, maybe Matthew's sons. They're very well dressed as as is he. And his left hand is going... Me? You. You, Matthew, I want you to come with me. The way he had called Peter and Andrew and James and John. You. The very hand of God pointing at you. I underline next these little words. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, from now on, things are going to be different for you. Are you ready for that? A real new beginning? The other day I picked up my newspaper before breakfast and as I opened it up, I saw a review of a play. The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. That play was written when I was in seminary. I had a professor, Dr. Ronald Sleeth, whose wife Natalie wrote the hymn of promise that you've come to love so much. Dr. Ronald Sleeth was teaching a course called Preaching Values in Contemporary Literature. Here was a new play. The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. There are three primary characters, a mother, two daughters, They live in a shabby apartment, junky. They've had a daddy. He left them for a younger woman. Then he went off and died, so he's paying no child support whatsoever. 
The mother gets up every morning, finds a newspaper down the street somewhere, brings it back in, in her bathrobe, and starts chain-smoking and drinking. Chain-smoking and drinking. She reads the one ads. She keeps telling these two daughters of hers, one day I'm going to own a tea room, one of those really fancy ones. I'll be the hostess. You two can wait tables. I'll make money and you'll get generous tips. But she does nothing to change her life. Nothing. It's just getting worse and worse. The older daughter seems to be falling into line. She's going to end up just like her mother. The hope is the younger daughter. Paul Newman liked this play so much, he bought the film rights to it. He directed the play. He cast his wife, Joanne Woodward, and their daughter as the younger of the two. It won a Pulitzer Prize. A science teacher at the local high school could see the emptiness in the eyes of this younger daughter. But she was coming to school hopeless. He didn't know all of her history, didn't know exactly what was bothering her, but he did two things. One, there's a rabbit that had been kept around school there for years, and finally nobody was really interested in it. He asked this little girl, would you like to have this rabbit? She said she would. It was the only thing in her life that returned any affection at all, it seems. She'd rush home from school to take this rabbit in her arms and stroke it. Then he got her interested in a science fair. The experiment he suggested to her was that he had read that seeds of various plants were being exposed to gamma rays and that scientists had discovered that sometimes when they exposed seeds to gamma rays, it killed them. They never did germinate but sometimes they got a mutation. Oh, you know what that word means. An offspring radically different from its parent. That's what this story is about. It's not about flower seeds. It's about this little girl. Can she become different from her mother, from her older sister? The big night comes, the science fair. She wants her mother to be there. Her mother has to brace herself with a few more drinks, so she shows up drunk. She is outlandishly dressed. She embarrasses the daughter. She embarrasses herself. She charges off home before everything's done. The little girl wins. She rushes home to show it to the only thing that cares, her rabbit. And her mother's gotten there before her and killed the rabbit. And this young girl takes this rabbit in her arms and goes out into the backyard and looks up at the heavens. And she says, I'm not going to be here like this forever. But I look up. I feel that I'm a part of what's good and beautiful and true. The play won the Pulitzer Prize. I said to Dr. Sleeth, wow, this young playwright has a great future ahead of him. He said, no, you missed something. This is his story. He was the younger child. He thought audiences might sympathize more with a little girl, so he changed to a little girl. It's his story. His daddy abandoned the family. His daddy went off and died. His mother is the chain smoker, the alcoholic. And I said, wow, what a great future he has as a playwright. He said, no, you didn't get it. He's not a playwright. He's a high school science teacher. 